Hi, and welcome to the Peak Endurance Podcast. My name is Isabel Ross, and I'm the coach at Peak Endurance Coaching. Episode 51 is an interview with Sam Souk, physiotherapist at Exercise Thought. Sam obtained his undergraduate physiotherapy degree at Monash University and wrote an honour thesis on the use of isometric exercise for treating tendon pain. In 2020, Sam will complete his postgraduate studies that place him in the top 8% of Australian physiotherapists. Sam's minor thesis in this postgraduate degree studies the effect that a physiotherapist's words have on a person's pain and performance. Sam teaches physiotherapy students through Monash University, La Trobe University, Swinburne University of Technology and the University of Melbourne. Sam is the Vice President of two councils for the Australian Physiotherapy Associations, the Victorian Branch Council and the Victorian Business Council. In the formative years of his career, Sam consulted through a large sports medicine clinic in the eastern suburbs of Melbourne and assisted the medical team at the Western Bulldogs, including the 2016 Triple Premiership year. Sam has always delivered private consultations and group consultations, the latter being a combination of Pilates classes and over-60s classes. In recent years, Sam has supervised research at Monash University and consulted privately at local aged care facilities while maintaining a full-time clinical load. Sam and I discuss how our words and mindset affect recovery from injury. It's a really interesting um, conversation and something I've thought about a lot before, but it was great to see that it's getting actual um, research and more scientific thought on this. I really hope you enjoy the interview. Are injuries or niggles ruining your enjoyment of running and hindering your performance? Get on top of these and see the specialists at Health and High Performance. Utilising the latest in technology and with a wealth of experience, the team at Health and High Performance can assist you with all your running injury and performance needs. So to get back to enjoying your running and achieving the results you're capable of, head to www.healthhp.com.au backslash run. Enjoy my chat with Sam. Hi, Sam, and welcome to the Peak Endurance Podcast. Thanks, Isabel. Nice to be with you. So, um, can you tell my audience a little bit about yourself in your own words, your running background and how you got into physio? Yeah, sure. So, my name is Sam Souk. I'm a physiotherapist. Uh, I have been um, wanting to be a physiotherapist for a long time. And I started off assisting the physios at an AFL club and consulting through a large sports medicine practice in the eastern side of Melbourne. And I then um, fulfilled a, a 10 year goal of, of running my own practice, which is called Exercise Thought. We're gonna talk about that later. Um, I did my honors thesis under Professor Jill Cook and Dr. Ebony Rio on Achilles tendinopathy and how isometric exercise can influence Achilles tendon pain. And outside of physio, I'm a member of Inverloch Surf Lifesaving Club and patrolled with the rescue life-saving helicopter for six summers i'm looking forward to getting back oh, wow. to the yeah. beach when this uh, winter season passes yeah yeah okay excellent and um can you explain you said your practice is called exercise thought can you explain mm-hmm. the reasoning behind the name of your physiotherapy practice yeah thanks for taking interest uh, exercise thought is an encouragement for people to think uh, and we we encourage people to think because two heads are better than one when a client adopts a research mindset in understanding their pain, understanding their injury and understanding how they're going to recover and then perform after that, 
the, the results are so much better than if a client takes a passive approach to simply allowing the physio to do all the work and all the thinking. Uh, so we, we chose exercise thought as the name of the practice because we want people to engage actively with their care. There's good research to show that self-efficacy and, and belief and, and um, a couple of other factors associated with the person's engagement can predict better outcomes. Yeah, that's, that sounds fair enough. Um, now, one thing I noticed you talk about is having goals um, to help with, with uh, recovery and with pain. And, and how, does, mm. how, how does having goals help with the sensation of pain? Yeah, great question. So it comes down to self-efficacy. A person, uh, and, and it's not a term that we use much outside of the research, a person's self-efficacy is their ability or their belief in their own ability to achieve a, a particular outcome or a particular goal. And it's a strong predictor of outcomes in healthcare, in healthcare and in injury recovery. And so we believe that it's, um, it's not always possible for us to completely shape someone's beliefs and someone's uh, self-efficacy, and we shouldn't set out to do so. But if we could nudge their beliefs in the right direction, nudge their self-efficacy, and the way that we do that is we, from the outset, we talk about their goals and we talk about what steps need to be achieved in order to achieve those goals. And we have to recognize that there is a pain and there is a problem that has often prompted that first consultation. And we've got to um, acknowledge that and, and validate it. And we shouldn't be too quick to jump immediately from the pain to the goals because sometimes people don't feel as though their, their problem has been thoroughly recognized and, and thoroughly understood. Um, so once we've recognized the key problem and, and the dissatisfaction, we then have to move um, move towards a goal and we have some handouts that we give our clients that are personalized um, summaries of, of the goal that they're achieving and the strategies towards that goal from a physiotherapy perspective and that that handout will also include key prescriptions um, key exercises key thoughts and key homework that helps them to get there and the, the last measure that we use is we, we occasionally use a, a zero to 10 pain scale because a lot of our clients do come in speaking to us about a pain. Um, we, we use that um, sparingly because my understanding of the research says that that zero to 10 pain scale may not be the best means of assessing and progressing a person. We, we tend to use more of a zero to 100 progress oh. score where 100 is complete recovery, complete performance, 100% uh, satisfaction with the way that things are going with respect to their particular goal and 0% being the, the starting point of, of when we first had an interaction between that client and the physiotherapist. So as an example, if, if you came in you know, uh, a couple of days or a week or maybe even a month after we'd first met, I'd ask you, Isabel, 100% is that, that perfect outcome that's exactly where you want to be that's where we've been working towards zero was where we started when we had our first conversation where would you put yourself on that journey today and and that would give me as a physiotherapist great insight into mm. where you see your recovery and it would also have each of us um, focus on and, and visualizing whether it be conscious or, or a subtle subconscious focus on the desired outcome on, on where we're heading and would you not focus on the pain because that tends to be sort of more a negative thing? It's got to be horses for courses. Uh, we have to 
acknowledge the pain, especially if the person is very focused on it. Um, and, and in the early parts of my career, I, I did make the mistake of, of not giving the pain enough attention um, where a client would, would be very, and quite rightfully so, pain is a, is a terrible experience and, and, and unpleasant um, and, and must be acknowledged. Um, and, and I think it was a, quite a, a sharp, painful lesson for me to learn <laughs> that um, people didn't feel as though I was being compassionate because I wasn't acknowledging their pain. And it was far from the truth. I was very interested in yeah. seeing them get a good outcome for them, but I didn't, I didn't give enough time acknowledging the problem before then moving towards the positive solution. So look, you're, you're right. I agree with you. I think it's more positive and more proactive to focus on the goal. Yeah but we've got to recognize that we shouldn't leap straight to that without first acknowledging the problem. Yeah. And so can you give an example of a goal, like just say for um, an Achilles tendon? Yeah. So Achilles tendon is great. So typically someone would, um, a classic story would be someone would say, I have this stiffness and this soreness in my Achilles tendon. When I wake up the first few steps in the morning, it might hang around for several minutes after they've rose from bed uh, and they would often describe a change in the amount of running that they've been doing recently so they might say i haven't been running much at all and then i've, I've been running more recently or maybe they changed yeah. their footwear which means that there's a, a change in the way that the achilles tendon works so that would be a typical story uh, and so the way that we'd set a goal is we'd focus not on getting rid of the achilles tendon pain because that's still focusing on the problem yeah. we would focus on being springy in their legs because the Achilles tendon functions as a spring, being able to run freely uh, and run for the, the length uh, or the duration that that person wishes and to be able to do so without any concern at all. And in doing so, we focus on the, the joy or the freedom of being unrestricted in performance as compared to the pain and the restriction that is, is currently facing this person. Uh, and particularly, I think with, um, with the language that we use as physiotherapists, metaphors can be very effective. And that's why um, talking about, you know, putting a spring back in your step, um, you know, having that bounce back, uh, that, that can be really helpful when talking about Achilles tendon recovery because it is a, a spring. It does give us that, that bounce. And uh, often the springing and bouncing is something that people who are injured are apprehensive to do because they're yeah. concerned that it's going to make the problem worse or they're, they're fearful that loading so dramatically could cause some problem uh, when in fact the Achilles tendon loves load that that's the only way and the best way of rehabilitating a tendon you've got to put some load on it and, and by load it's it's it has to be the right kind of load and, and often that's running um, for, for, for people who are runners the best kind of load is is running you've just got to find out what that best dosage is fair enough now that sounds good um, so you talk also about um, how the beliefs of our injury or our pain can affect um, the rate of healing or recovery. How does that work? Oh, I don't know. <laughs> uh, this, is, this is a rabbit hole here. Yeah. Um, it's important to recognise that our beliefs are shaped through our whole lives. And, and a great illustration of that is, um, do you have children, Isabel? Yeah, I, I thought you did. Um, if you've ever seen it, and most of us have, 
a child falls over, they graze their knees, maybe they've fallen off a bike or they've tripped and, and, and landed on their shins. The reaction of the parent often influences the reaction of the child to that surprising event. Yeah. If the parent says, you're okay, honey, jump up, um, keep going. Often the child does just that and you know, it looks a little bit stunned. Their face might you know, just be a bit blank initially, but then they, they carry on. Whereas if the parent says, oh, darling, are you okay? And runs over to the child, the child often cries and looks more upset than in the first scenario. And so from this illustration, we can see that the influence of our upbringing, uh, of, our, of our parenting, um, is significant in shaping our beliefs and in particular, giving meaning to what is an unpleasant experience, such as surprise or, or falling over. And, and it's not clear whether or not that child in each scenario falling onto their shins had pain. Um, yeah. We'd have to ask them. And, and often the, the meaning of pain or the, the definition of pain is, is shaped by the way that our parents have talked to us over the years or the way that our, um, our teachers, our, our peers have, have talked about pain and injury. So it's, it's not clear based on that information alone whether or not pain was felt. But you can see from this certainly how um, those around us have shaped our beliefs and you know, other stories as well. Like in our family, there's the, uh, the, the bung left knee and there's this joke about you know, everyone across the generations has had a left knee pain. And, and so, you know, what would you start thinking then if your parents and grandparents have talked about this yeah. bung left knee and you start to notice a niggle in your knee, do you think it's inevitable that I'm going to have this yeah. and I can't get rid of it? Um, as opposed to you know, a child of the same age with the same niggle in their knee having never been told anything about a bung left knee. Um, and and it's, it's really, it can be very helpful and, and it can be very much a hindrance depending on what that behavior and what that belief is. Um, so I don't, I, I don't think I, I could rightly tell you that I know how it works, but I do think that the old saying of um, we are the sum of the people we spend, the yeah. five people we spend the most time with. Oh, I think I've probably butchered that one, but. No, I the, think that's basically right. Yeah. It, it takes a village to raise every human and, and that village very much shapes how we see the world and how we see ourselves. So say for instance, in the case of say the child who, I mean, I, I think it's correct to not go over the top when a child gets injured, but can you also learn then to ignore um, pain to the detriment? Absolutely. Yes, absolutely. And there's, there's good research showing that, the small small portion of our population who is born without the ability to feel pain mm. and there is a recognized medical condition for this they tend to die at a younger age um, they're more prone to to things like um, infections from cuts that they didn't know they have um, or more likely to take risky behavior um, and and we have to recognize that pain is a, an evolutionary advantage it's something that enables us to look after our body and to look after ourselves and to preserve our life. And at the same time, um, <laughs> so, so you, you might say, all right, pain is there to protect us, but then we've also got to recognize that most of the time, this is the amount of stress or the amount of load required to cause 
permanent or physical damage. And this is the point at which we feel pain. There's always a buffer between the two. And it's our upbringing, it's our belief, it's our mindset, as well as our conditioning, such as how much running we've done, that determines the size of that buffer. So if a person hasn't done much running at all, there might be a huge buffer between the level of running required to do permanent physical damage and the level at which they feel really, really uncomfortable and and in a bit of pain. Once the person runs a bit more, yes, their body's going to be more durable and and more capable of of running. And so that that first barrier will go up, that first threshold will go up, but so will their level of tolerance to that discomfort. And so it's, I don't really know if we should be looking to avoid pain completely because I think it has a role to play. I've experimented myself with with running and and I don't know how effectively these experiments can be done on ourselves, but I, I would run for a long distance and long enough that my toes and my feet would would really start burning. And then I would tell myself that my elbows feel fine and to focus on how good and comfortable my elbows feel, um, which I knew at the time was a ridiculous thought because my elbows, of course, would feel fine. They weren't doing much work. Um, and I did find that for that moment that I was focusing on my elbows, my, my feet did feel better. Um, but then I focused on my feet and then it would hurt more. So I'm not convinced that we should be ignoring pain, but rather recognizing the importance that it plays in preserving our health and preserving our function. And then using that wisely to enable performance. And I think that's what the, the best performers do is, I don't think the best performers experience an absence of pain, but they are able to consider it and sometimes even use it to their advantage. So that's like, um, say, an ultra runner when they're deep into a, say, a hundred miler and they're feeling the pain, they, they can look at it and accept it and then go, okay, so there is pain. Is it an injury? Yes or no. But then if it's not, you can just keep going. Is that kind of what you're talking about as well? Exactly. It's being able to recognize it and and almost view it with the level of curiosity. Mm. Um, That curiosity immediately de-threatens the pain. And if there's one thing that um, I I could explain simply without opening a whole can of worms is that the amount of pain that we feel is an indication of how threatened our body feels at at that time. Um, so as an example of demonstrating that, this, there are two research studies I'd like to, to bring forward. The first is where they placed uh, a piece of metal onto the research participant's skin. So they'd say, all right, Isabel, I'm going to place a piece of metal on your forearm. Can you please tell me when that metal becomes painful? And they gradually heat the metal up until that person says, yes, it's painful now. And in this research study, they they had two conditions. The first condition, they showed a person a red light while the metal was heating up. And in the second condition where the metal was heating up, they showed them a blue light. And you can, you can guess, Isabel, yeah, which yeah. condition brought the pain on first? The red light, obviously. The red one, yes. And in the second study that I'd like to bring forward, and this is one of many studies that's been conducted, um, they, they showed people a, a gauge with a needle that would go up 
and down, supposedly indicating the intensity of the, the electrical stimulus that was being put onto a person's body. And the gauge was actually a, a farce. It didn't indicate anything. It wasn't at all related to the amount of current going into the person's body. Um, but anyway, they, they applied a constant current to these research participants who, who weirdly had volunteered for this. <laughs> and it takes a special kind of person to volunteer for this. Uh, and then they, they would put the gauge up. And when participants saw that the gauge was going up, they would report more pain compared to when they didn't see the gauge going up. And so from, from this, we can see that the pain is not just about what's physically happening to the body, the amount of electricity going into the body, the amount of heat on the skin, that it's also the information that our eyes take in. It's the information that we hear. It's the information that we smell and taste. And it's also very much related to our, our memories of the past and our hopes for the future. And so from this pain is, is, um, is a it's a response it's well hang on you've just cut off for a second hang on i've lost you i can see you but i can't hear you try again that's all right can you hear yep, me there we go so sorry go back to, to what you were saying perfectly fine uh did you which part did you hear um so you're saying it's it's a response um mm. yep yeah, pain is a response. It's an output from our brain after our brain has taken on board all this information. It's the brain has, has listened to how hot the skin feels. It's looked at how red the light is. It's looked at the environment such as, oh, we're sitting in a room with researchers doing a pain study. Uh, mm. It's then thinking, have we been in this situation before? What happened last time? What's going to happen next? Um, and it assesses all that information and within fractions of a second computes a, a meaning or, or gives a meaning to that experience and then tells us if we're threatened and if we're threatened, we're, we're more likely to feel a, a pain. If we're not threatened and in fact we're safe, then we won't feel a pain and we might feel something else, uh, such as a gentle warmth on the, on the surface of our skin. Um, so from this, we can see that pain is not purely a physical thing, nor is it purely a psychological thing. Mm. It's, um, it's not mind over matter necessarily, but mind and matter. So um, if we've got an injury or a pain, um, does doing uh, visualisation of it healing or it's the pain going away, can that help? I, I believe it does. And I, I would think focusing less on the pain going away but more on the ability to move comfortably oh, okay. or yep. the ability to rest comfortably. Again, if we focus on the pain going away, we might still be focusing on the pain. Yeah, you're right. Um, so so it's, it's a good point. I think that visualization can help us. And a big part of that is you know, circling back to an early part of our conversation, having a goal because often a goal is is not just something written down on paper often a goal is a a movie that we play in our heads or or uh, at least a a picture that we have in our minds i think many of us think in pictures more than we think in words and and that picture might 
might be you know, Isabel crossing the line of a hundred miler. It could be Isabel resting on the couch, satisfied that she completed an event that she had sacrificed a lot in, in the preparation of. Uh, it could be something to that nature. And that goal certainly does provide an analgesic effect to pain, as well as enable better performance. And uh, there, there's various studies that we could discuss with uh, demonstrate that. And, and one of my favorites is they got people on a treadmill and they asked them to run as far as they could for as long as they could. And then when the research participants said, I, I can't go any further, I'm, I'm done. They then showed them that the goal or the, the finish line was just a little bit further ahead. Mm. And, and they, they did. Suddenly they further. could do it. Yeah. 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 yeah that's interesting. So what about, say, like at the start of a race, often people are, you know, talking at the start of a race and they're like, oh, I've got this injury and I'm this, you know, they're kind of, so that they're giving an excuse in a way, but, well, not an excuse, but <laughs> they, don't, they don't want too much pressure. So they say, oh, I've got this injury and this niggle and that and that. How does that affect our performance if we're, if we're sort of telling people about different niggles and injuries and how does that affect how we recover from injury and also how we perform? Yeah, certainly. Look, again, it has to be an individual basis because some people might need to tell themselves, um, yeah, so say that they're doing an event where they need to pace themselves in order to get the best result. Telling themselves that they've got a, a hindrance might enable them to adopt the perfect pace at the start of the race instead of going out guns blazing and then hitting Burning the out, yeah. You're burning out, exactly. Um, so in that way, a negative belief may advance their performance compared to the absence of that belief. At the same time, I believe you're right. I think sometimes we provide these excuses as a way of lowering the bar uh, so that we're not disappointed. And I think that's, I think that's quite um, human um, because we love being right and we... We love succeeding. And if we succeed at a lower level, sometimes that feels just as good as setting the bar higher and, and striving for that. Um, I, I think it, it has to be considered what level of ambition that individual wants. And, and as a coach or as a physiotherapist, um, it's, it's very tempting to constantly push someone to a higher level and and for some cases the athlete or the individual wants to be pushed to the absolute highest level uh, and and so we we can do so freely uh, and we can you know, challenge all of their excuses and challenge all of their beliefs and say well hold on why did you say that shouldn't you be saying this or hold on this isn't going to help you maybe you should think about it differently or let's reframe that so that you can perform better Sometimes people want to be pushed to their highest degree and sometimes people don't. And I think something that I've learned as a, as a physiotherapist, as much as um, being one of those annoying optimists in, in life in general, uh, is that sometimes people want to experience negative emotions and excuses and we've got to allow space for that. And uh, to, to recognize also that some people perform beautifully from a state of negativity and david goggins is is oh, would be a sure. good example of that 
he I don't think anyone would describe him as an optimist. Um, he, he seems to have this quite um, dark means of transforming excuses or beliefs that are often negative in nature into some performance advantage. And I, I'm not sure that any of us could simply adopt that approach because we've listened to a YouTube video of David Goggin speaking. Uh, I think that's a big part of his personality and his life until this mm. point. Um, so look, I think you're right. I think we've got to be aware of what effect our beliefs have, uh, but I don't think there's something that we could for an individual outside of ourselves or for ourselves I don't think there's necessarily a switch that we can flick that suddenly changes our beliefs. I think we've got to cultivate them over time. And so, um, and like you were saying about the five people that you spend the most time with, if we're with people who are um, often saying, oh, I've got this injury on my back and on my knee and on my whatever, mm. does that affect how we see our own injuries and do, does, do we thus feel more pain from ours? Um, yeah. It depends on how agreeable the individual is. I think if a person is very agreeable and inclined to be empathetic and inclined to be um, influenced by those around them, then absolutely. And, and there are research studies that have demonstrated that when we watch someone move, we become better at moving in that way simply because we've observed them. <clears throat> and, and it's not... I think my, um, my voice is kind of a bit croaky. Yeah, it's um, early morning. <laughs> yeah, maybe it's the early morning, yeah. Uh, so as an example, if, if we watch someone jump as high as they can, the same pathways in our brain, the same nerves, same motor cortex is activated as when we actually do the jump. And so in this way, if we see someone hobbling around on their knee or talking about their disc bulge or talking about something that's, that's troubling them and they're moving in a particular way, that observation of their movement could influence how we move. And at the same time, if they talk about pain in a way that shapes our influence or our experience of pain, then that's going to change how we feel and, and how we operate as well. Um, so I, I believe you're exactly right. And it's <laughs> a good example would be when some, someone yawns in the room. Yeah. Yeah. And then the yawn tends to be in, infectious. Um, I'm Very cautious infectious. to use that word during COVID. Yeah. Um, but you certainly start to, and it probably comes down to the significance of the event too. I mean, I think some of us might be, wondering over the last few months you know do i have a fever or am yeah. i am i coughing does one cough count as as, as coughing as a symptom um and and we become much more vigilant uh and so certainly i think we're very social beings as, as humans and, and that does influence how we live our lives and um yeah i don't think you can necessarily pick your parents so much but um you probably could uh be aware of and and consider how those around you influence your own behavior and your own performance in an athletic domain 
Yeah. Yep. No, that sounds good. Now you said it's quite that you can't just change your self beliefs. Is there anything we can do to be more positive about our injuries, which sounds crazy, but mm. you know, I mean, runners do inevitably get injured. So is there a way of having a more positive outlook on the little niggles and the injuries to help us get through it? Mm. Yeah, I, I think it, I think we can change our beliefs and I have to believe that because mm. I'm an innately hopeful person and to believe the opposite would be devastating. Um, I, I did have a client whose her father passed away and her beliefs with respect to her own health and what she needed to do to be healthy changed overnight. Um, and from that example, we can see that it is possible to have your beliefs changed in an instant. Mm. It's also a very significant event, the passing of a parent. Um, there are other strategies that, that we could use, such as uh, meditating on a particular question or uh, journaling on a particular thought that could, I believe, could be helpful in shaping our behaviour and shaping our worldview. Um, one, one that your, your listeners might be aware of is, is writing down three things that you're grateful for every day. Yeah. Um, that has been shown through some, some rigorous research to change people's, not only change people's mood long-term, but they, it was demonstrated in the research that they, these people became more intelligent compared to okay. um, those who, who didn't complete this task. Uh, and uh, yeah, there's, there's speculation as to why that is. Is it because they, they are less inclined to be distracted by doubts or hesitations and more inclined to just throw themselves into the task? Um, that, that could be true. Uh, so I, I think that there are ways that we can meditate on or, or focus on uh, thoughts or, or goals that do influence and, in fact, improve our performance, um, as well as, yes, certainly I think surrounding ourselves with certain people or, or, or seeking out the, the influence of, of particular individuals, whether that be a coach or uh, a supporter, um, I think that that can have a, a significant impact. And, and I think, of course, very much um, our behaviour, what we do on a day-to-day -day basis has to be considered. Uh, should, you know, when we, and this is, um, this is contentious because some people don't agree with this, but I, I, I do. Um, Dr. Jordan Peterson has, has oh, rose yeah. to acclaim recently as a clinical psychologist uh, from, from Canada. And he talks about... Yeah, he's about, great. Yep. You read his work, have you read his, his work yes. about lobsters? Yes. Yeah. Okay. So, so for those listeners who have heard about Jordan Peterson's lobsters, you'll, you'll forgive me for, for explaining this um, for the benefit of those who haven't. Uh, so our, a lobster's neurochemical system runs on serotonin in the same way that a human's neurochemical system does. And it's not to say that humans and lobsters are identical. They are not, but it's a, it's a very similar network and it's, it's very difficult for anyone to argue that, the networks are not related in any way and not comparable in, in any way. And so what we find is that when a lobster succeeds, when, when he you know, fights another lobster and wins, he stands up taller, he opens up himself more broadly, uh, exposing the vulnerable parts of his lobster self, 
and and that's similar in in ways to, to humans when we stand that there are studies that have shown that when we stand tall and with an open shoulder or, or an open chest that we after doing so feel more confident and are more inclined to to face a problem with with courage and compared to you know slouching in the corner or, or yeah, curling ourselves into the fetal position and and so uh, from this we can see that if we achieve or accomplish certain things regularly in our life and that could be something as simple as um, yeah, learning learning a new skill on a day-to-day basis one of my favorites is learning how to do things with my left non-dominant hand nice. just as good as my right uh, dominant hand and and the more we accomplish things the more we achieve things the greater our belief becomes in our ability to achieve other things and and that that's the basis of self-efficacy and, and self-belief um, from a behavioral perspective but we have to consider that as we talked about the, the children falling over and grazing their knees um, there is a, a huge um, uh, education that we've been given Learn from, from our each, parents I guess. Yep. from our environment absolutely yeah. yeah yeah so now um back on to um achilles tendinopathy that you were talking mm. about just out of interest mm. you said isometric i just thought we'll quickly segue on to this one uh, as we're wrapping up um now normally we don't do we're told to do a, a heel drop and that sort of thing and now you're saying mm. isometric um i'm a big <laughs> believer in isometric exercises so can you tell me how that helps with with healing that one yeah it's um it's tempting to jump on a bad wagon it's tempting to get swept away with trends mm. and when i say that um i'll i'll tell you a bit of a short bit of history in in the research of achilles tendon pain um it was in Scandinavia initially where the Alfredson protocol of heel drop an eccentric exercise whereby a person would, this is a step, a person would put their toes on the step and they would slowly lower the heel towards the next step and then come back up and slowly lower the heel towards the next step. An eccentric calf and Achilles exercise. They had a heavy backpack on their shoulders. They did a lot of repetitions. I think it was 180 repetitions and, and we're encouraged to work through pain this was for a group of middle-aged recreational runners who had a long-standing history of achilles tendon pain uh, so it's that grumbly achilles tendon that's always kind of been there and hasn't really gone away and doesn't really get much worse or better it's just kind of always there for that group oh and they're in scandinavia as well so if we consider the effect that our upbringing and our environment has on our beliefs yeah. all these factors are important for that group, Achilles exercises, the heel drop, as you described, worked beautifully. It reduced their pain and improved their running. However, when you apply the same protocol to a young population of Australian athletes who have only had pain for a short period of time, they get worse. Yeah. So eccentrics isn't a panacea. We then thought, all right, if it's not eccentrics, what else could it be? A lot of research was done um, five years ago and, and in the years since on isometric exercise and the effect that isometrics 
has on pain. And at the time that I was doing my honest thesis, there were several theories about how isometrics would reduce pain in, in Achilles tendinopathy. Um, one theory is that there was a cascade of neurochemicals that came from the... Oh, hang on, we've lost you again. ...into the Achilles tendon. Another thought is that it would change blood pressure and that change in blood pressure would influence pain. Another belief is that simply the expectation given by the researchers saying, Isabel, this isometric exercise is going to reduce your pain, that that would actually exert an influence. And other people would quite underwhelmingly suggest that if it's eccentric or if it's isometric or if it's concentric or if it's a combination of all of the above, if you gradually load the body, it will adapt. And that it doesn't have to be one particular style of um, of contraction. And there are different types of Achilles tendon pain, of course. Um, there are, are some Achilles tendon pains that are localized around the heel. And there are other Achilles tendon pains that feel sore more through the, the lower part of the leg, not, not as far as the heel, but through the meatier part of the leg. Uh, and we, we call these respectively uh, insertional Achilles tendon pain and mid-substance Achilles tendon pain. And, and there is good anatomical reason and there is good clinical experience demonstrating that each of these responds to a, a different uh, position of loading um, and that the, the heel drop exercise that we described before can irritate uh, one of them much more than the other. And so the the contraction whether it be concentric eccentric or isometric must be considered as well as the position that the the structures are placed in during the load uh, and we must also consider the the dosage of that load as well um, and and i think also it has to be considered a person's pain tolerance um, because some people and i think now of a client who is ex-military um he, he would always talk about the number of kills that he had and he he had a belief that if it didn't hurt it wasn't worthwhile yeah that there'd be no benefit in doing something that didn't hurt and other people believe that pain is bad and pain must be avoided and that, that pain indicates you're doing something dangerous um, so, yeah, I hope that ramble gives some insight. Yeah, yeah, and, no, that, um, that does. And so, again, basically, the... yeah, it depends on on the on the person and and also yeah on their pain threshold, I guess. Mm. Yeah, no, that's very interesting. All right, well, um, do you think there was is there was there anything we missed that you wanted to share with the listeners that I didn't touch on there at all? Oh, I feel as though I've I've, um, I've talked there. too much. No. I'd be interested to hear what your thoughts, uh, Isabel. What, what are your thoughts on on belief well, and, well, and ultramarathon? Yeah, I'm, I very much a, a agree with what you've said. And I certainly was brought up to, um, to not put too much focus on pain. And, um, I mean, people have said to me that I must have a high pain threshold. I don't know. Um, but... Uh, because it's just what it, my pain threshold is, but I don't. I personally know that I don't feel pain as badly as other people. So, mm. I think that comes from my upbringing and my belief. And 
yeah. So mm. I certainly do agree with that, yeah. And I think sometimes it has <laughs> led me... Sorry? You were saying sometimes it has made you... It has led me to um, run through pain that I shouldn't have and which has caused me to get injured. So, you know, but that's okay. <laughs> mm. it, it's all part of the... Um, you got to pick your poison sometimes, don't you? Yeah. Yeah. And you could either yeah, push through that that barrier of what might be seen as rational and accept the consequences or not. And something I, I would add in, you asked if there was something I wanted to, to add, is that yeah. we've talked a lot about upbringing and childhood and, and past. Um, future has a an influence as well. And... Um, to, and if anyone's interested in this, um, there are a few things that you could look into. You could look at Viktor Frankl's book, mm. Man's Search for Meaning. That's a great uh, book. Frankl, it's an excellent yeah. book. So, yeah. uh, Jewish German psychiatrist interned in a, a prisoner of war camp, not a prisoner of war camp, a, um, uh, a containment camp. camp, a concentration camp. Yes, I'm, yeah. I'm sorry. Thank you. Um, uh, during the, the Holocaust, and he wrote a book about how the the meaning that people gave to their lives and the meaning that people gave to events around them influenced how well they could survive atrocious conditions. And the other book that I would encourage people consider is a book called The Courage to Be Disliked, um, wherein there's a conversation between a, a guru and a young man, and the the conversation focuses on whether or not um, the teleological approach, uh, teleology being the, the focus on future and the focus on pursuing goals, um, as compared to the etiological approach, which is what a lot of um, modern medicine is based on, you know, to say that these things have happened in your past, this event has occurred, therefore this is your situation. The teleological approach says this is what you want in life this is what you want to achieve and this is where you're heading therefore this is your situation so you could say that um a let's let's say an achilles tendon pain uh, it could be that a person has gone to see a physiotherapist for an achilles tendon pain because they have had pain while running in the past and that running that pain has in, impaired their performance and the difference uh, that would be an atheological approach past mm. begets present and a teleological approach would be that future begets present the person has spoken to a physiotherapist about their achilles tendon pain because they have an aspiration for running better in the future for running freely for performing at a higher function and better understanding their body uh, which is more of a future focus uh, and so I think that that would have to be considered. And we don't know to what degree past and future influence our current situation, but I think always both are at play. Mm, yeah. No, very interesting. I'll, I'll have to, I haven't read that book, so I'll, I'll be looking that one up too. All right. So how can people um, find you if they are interested in, in uh, you know, your physiotherapy and that sort of thing? Sure. Oh, they're welcome to to look up exercise thought physiotherapy. Um, we're we're online, uh, but we we also practice in Lilydale, the beautiful Yarra Valley, out here in down here in Victoria. Um, 
that Samsuk isn't um, the most common name. So uh, they're welcome to, to search that um, Suk like puke or juke um, <laughs> uh, would, uh, would help them to track me down um, if, if they want to find me on Google or YouTube or Facebook, uh, they can do so. I'm always happy to chat about these things. I really enjoy the yeah. questions that you asked and, um, and, and thank you for the opportunity to, to, to present on this, on this great podcast. And, and I hope the, the listeners enjoyed it, that they are most welcome to, um, to contact me. Um, the easiest one is probably email uh, and then we can hit up a, a phone call if they want. Um, email is uh, physio, P-H-Y-S-I-O at exercisethought.com. All right. Well, I'll put all those um, links in the show notes if people um, haven't remembered to write them down while they're running. <laughs> um, anyway, thank you so much for chatting with us today and I really appreciate it. Thank you, Isabel. It's an absolute pleasure and um, I hope your listeners got a lot out of it. I'm sure they did. All right. Thanks for that. See ya. Bye. Interesting discussion, don't you think? A big takeaway for me from this interview was that our mindset and view of ourselves impacts every part of our lives. I used to think of it as just, you know, affecting my confidence or outlook on life and that sort of thing, but it's amazing to think that it even can affect our recovery from injury. All the more reason to adopt a positive mindset and be kind to ourselves. Let me know your thoughts, either in the comments about this interview on the podcast Instagram page or by DM or by email. Thank you so much for supporting my podcast. I really appreciate the people who take the couple of minutes out of their day to go onto Apple Podcasts to rate and review. I read all of the reviews and they sure do inspire me to keep working on the podcast and keep trying to get really good uh, people to interview. And I'm, I'm so happy with the variety of people I've had on. It really makes for an interesting time for me too. Next week's interview is with Joe Friel who talks about how athletes can keep their speed even as they age. Good news for all of us as getting older is inevitable, though growing up is optional. So make sure you stay committed and consistent with your training. If you are focused on improving as an athlete, email me, isabel at peakendurancecoaching.com.au to organise an individualised training plan. Have a great week of training.